This is part two of a three-part podcast. Put Paul's brain on your plot. Do you have a hunk of land but don't know where to start? Do you have a world-changing permaculture idea and you need some feedback? Do you feel like the guy in overalls may inexplicably hold the keys to all your wildest permaculture and homesteading dreams? Well, you're probably wrong. But if you want to give it a go anyway, you can hire Paul for a consultation. He will be all yours for a whole entire hour. Schedule your Paul conversation today at permies.com slash consult. permies.com slash consult. I, I think that the remainder of today's podcast is about things that people can do and um and and specifically involving climate change and so mm-hmm. the idea is is that each individual has a each individual in the united states each adult in the united states has a carbon footprint of 30 tons and it's kind of like so we're going to uh explore how to chip away at that but even more than that i think that we're going to talk about ways to go from 30 tons to um, uh, a negative 30 tons uh, or even a negative 100 tons. Um, but, Alan, I'm going to turn it over to you. Somebody's knocking on my door. Give me just a moment. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that um, that, that is absolutely possible. Um, but I, I think that, um, what you have to do is you have to kind of come in and, um, and look at it from the viewpoint of, you know, what is actually creating the majority of our, well, not only carbon footprint, but what I would think of as our, um, energy use footprint and our pollution footprint, um, all of these things, what's, creating those and those become the points of high leverage. Um, and I know that, um, you know, there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff and we, we, we can poke the whole light bulb issue and the fact that, um, you know, chain light bulbs end up being a very small percentage of the amount of energy use and the amount of, of, of carbon that's being produced by an individual person. And, um, but what it's done is by talking about those kinds of things, what we wind up with is ignoring the actual points of intervention that can have a huge potential impact uh, in the real world. And I think that's, you know, that that's where we need to start that conversation. This is a good point to say that um, in this podcast between you and I, We've invited a bunch of people from the permies.com staff and a bunch of people from my uh, Patreon podcast thing to come and participate in this with us. And uh, we're using Zoom, and so I'm sure everybody listening to this knows how Zoom works. And so somebody has their hand up, and that's Chris. Chris, did you have something that you wanted to add to this? Yeah, um, I think going back to the individual and the impact that you actually have uh, – if uh, the permaculture stuff, as you step back and you observe, and one of the things it's it's difficult to do, but observe. And uh, so on our little tiny four-acre farm, we produce a huge amount of produce and food and energy. And 
it has affected the corporate farms around us because the farm behind me has uh, watched us for years and they've changed their practices slowly to make their uh, their farm way better. In fact, we just got two inches of rain. There wasn't the creek hardly even come up. It was it was just amazing to watch how they're working on trapping water and storing it in on their farm. Uh, I don't have nitrates running all over my farm from their farm. Uh, it's so you make a difference, but it's a time thing, and it, you got to observe it and step back and look. So that's just one of the things. Sometimes it gets so disheartening looking at this stuff, but in all reality, each individual. Trying to do the right thing will make a dent. So this that's my piece. This is kind of the core of the Better World book, I think, is that I kind of feel like everything in the book is about adding money and or luxury to your life while simultaneously doing things that are good for these issues, these these global problems, that help, help to solve these global problems. And I think yeah. nearly everything is going to be something where you go and you do the thing, and then you reap the reward, and then your neighbor who has a different philosophy set or political set or whatever observes that and says, no, fair. I want to have candy, too. And then they start to adopt some of the things that you're effectively demonstrating. Um, I know that there were a bunch of people this last winter in Missoula, and I there was a group where Missoula people were talking, and they were complaining about how uh, the natural gas costs, costs this year have gone way up, and the uh, electrical rates have nearly doubled, and things of that nature, and they were all so frustrated at the cost and how much, how expensive it is to heat their home this last winter, and I said, my home heating costs are zero. And when I tried to describe it, they we get back to this whole thing about how they can't hear it. They it's too challenging. It's too much. And I would describe, but you know, this particular one that I'm using was built in a day, and um. And that was built 10 years ago, and it looks like it's still brand new. It probably has another 100 years of life left in it. And, you know, and I, I talk about, you know, the wood and things like that, and it's like they – it's like they – it's too crazy. All right. I think you're right. You 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 do the things that you want to do and you demonstrate. My guess is, is that when I ask you the question that if a hundred million people read my book, would it solve climate change? Cause today's thing is about climate change. Your answer would be different than Mr. Booker's. Yeah. I think uh, we each, uh, because there isn't a lot of people that have done a lot of things, the, the spread of that, the the ideas yeah. uh, affects a lot more people than you think it does. Now, some people only make one little change, but one little change is still better than no change. Right. So as we go on, uh, 
But and and the other thing is the books are hard to it's hard to comprehend because I know one of the books I got went to four different people so far. <laughs> so so they're moving around the world and then I it started here in Ohio and it's in Alabama right now. So that's kind of a cool thing. Um that, that is cool. Yeah, so you think about some of them things, it, it does affect, and some people that we, I never would have thought would have grabbed a hold of some of these ideas, it has. Um, and I'm one of the few with a rocket mass heater. It's not conventional rocket mass heater, but mine's an outdoor one, and I heat water to heat the house. And we also heat, for basically for free, at the... The, the wood comes from the scrap industry around us. So, you know, the, and a lot of people are interested in that. And because of the costs of everything are going up. So people are starting to ask the questions. And if they read the book, they'll get more of a, an idea and put them back on that, that on a mind frame where they can understand it. And I think that's where we, you guys started in the beginning. That mind frame is hard to get them to that point but once you do they'll go for more things and that's where we're at i i was going to say i think that what we're getting at here and and thanks chris for the the story is that as you said when people can actually see an example this is a big catalyst and that's why i was saying you know 100 million people read the book uh i don't know 100 million people you know, when you bring that in, but people also seeing people bring solutions online so they can see it themselves and internalize that, then it helps them get past that block. Because a lot of people, when they just they just encounter an abstract idea without any concrete embodiment of it, have a hard time. But if they get the abstract idea and begin to, begins to like mull around in the back of their head and then they run into the real thing, now they have, now something starts to happen. So, you know, I, I think that the combination of those two things, um, are, is quite powerful for inducing change. So, Alan, let's jump into it. Let's get, let's get to the, the thing that we really want to talk about. And it's like, um, and, and granted, we're going to talk about carbon footprint. It's 30 tons per person per year. And that's per adult person in the United States is 30 tons. And, um, uh, what's going to be your, your number one thing that a, that one person can do to put a dent in that 30 tons? Let's start there. And we'll kind of go back and forth. We'll each pick one and then when, you know, and eventually we'll get to things that are smaller. Um, but, but what's going to be your biggest one that an individual can do? Well, I know Paul, in general, a lot of times you you frame things from your perspective of living in Montana. I end up doing consulting in a lot of different climate zones. So I'm going to put it in a particular way that's a little more climate zone neutral which is that, in general, the thing that ends up using the most energy for most people is manipulating heat, either producing it or getting rid of it. And so this is, if you go looking at the amount of energy we use in a house, 
or in an office or any building, then the highest point of leverage to intervene is how you're either heating it in a cold environment or how you're cooling it in a hot environment, also how you're producing heat for cooking or heat for hot water. These kinds of things, if you start looking at it, are always the place where the most energy is involved and therefore almost always the largest leverage points for carbon as well. So I would basically say my number one thing would be um, figure out what the proper intervention is for your climate zone in dealing with the production of heat or the removal of heat from and management of heat in your particular situation. So um, I, I, I feel like uh, this is an area where I want to talk for a hundred hours. Yep. And of course, I'm going to talk about rocket mass heaters, which you have taken to a beautiful new level with carbon negative mass heaters. Um, and, uh, uh, which is just the, that presentation that you gave, that webinar you gave was just glorious. Um, and so, uh, it's a bit, if, if people haven't seen it, uh, I think we're, we've got it up on Permies. It's 10 bucks, I think. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's, it's well worth it. Um, it's, it's absolutely excellent, but setting that aside, I do want to just throw out some stuff, which I'm not sure if I've ever thrown it out in a podcast before. And that is that the average home in Montana, and I'm going to limit this to Montana because as you talk about, you know, as you go all over the world, it, it changes. It becomes different. But yeah. if I focus for a moment just on Montana, and I have to say that because of reasons, but also because I've, I have done the deep research on the numbers. The, um, if you heat your home with baseboard heat, with electric baseboard heat, then, um, uh, the carbon footprint on average for the average home and the average, the average sized home in Montana is 2000 square feet. I think it's actually like 2010 square feet, but, but for easy math, 2000 square feet. And, uh, the, the average carbon footprint for electric baseboard heat in Montana is 29.4 tons. Mm-hmm. Um, and just for reference sake again, that's, um, uh, it's 30 tons of carbon footprint per American adult, uh, per year. So now granted, I do want to also go on to say it used to be that the average number of adults per home used to be, uh, well, we used to say number of people was 2.4, but that included kids. But basically the thing is, is that on average today, there's an average of uh, two people per home. So it's actually half of that. But all the numbers I have are for per home. Mm-hmm. And so you can divide these numbers in half if you want to get the uh the carbon footprint per adult uh in Montana. But twenty nine point four for electric heat. Now I used to have information that it was nine point zero for natural gas, but 
I, I, new information has come out, which has thrown those numbers out the window. It's far worse. How much worse? The calculations are too complex. I mean, basically the thing is, is that the amount of leaks in the system is yes. profound. And, yes. and while, and what it leaks is not carbon dioxide, what it leaks is methane. Methane. And, and it's like the story of methane up in the atmosphere is crazy, but we can convert it into what we call carbon dioxide equivalent. Yep. And so there's a CO2 equivalency. And it is like 200. By the way, let's just say that for the moment, I'm going to do some rounding and I'm going to say a number um, that is uh, has one significant digit. And so um, we can have a little lecture on significant digits if people feel like that's important. But whereas for electric heat, 29.4 tons, I'm going to say that for natural gas heat, 20 tons. And... Um, and I'm, I'm saying that with one significant digit. Is there anybody on this call that feels like I need to say what is what significant digits are? Like, go ahead and raise your hand if you feel like. Okay, I don't see any hands. I think we're good. So, mathematically, one significant digit. Um, Mr. Booker, I'm going to say used to be nine. Now we've learned so much more about the leaks. I'm now saying twenty. Would you agree with this number? Do you want to try a different number on for size? You're right. It's very difficult because we we don't have so much like, you know, it's like, well, leaks where? There's huge leaks in the actual um, fracking process that we're still getting our, our heads wrapped around. You know, how much is this lost in the actual process of extracting from the ground? And then there's... You know, there's loss, there's leaks in transport, there's leaks in storage, there's leaks in distribution, there's leaks at the point of use, and then, you know, in, in natural gas. So all of that, I'm just looking here at the EPA's numbers. The, to give you a, a people a, a sense of the difference between carbon dioxide and methane, uh, the, what they call the global, global warming potential number is an, an index of how bad the gas, the, the greenhouse gas is. And they use carbon dioxide as a one for the 100-year global warming potential. And the EPA is currently saying that methane, when it's in the atmosphere, has a global warming potential, 100-year global warming potential of 28. Okay, that's the number that EPA is giving right now on their website. So, yes, when we let methane loose into the atmosphere... Um, its global warming potential is many, 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 many times higher than carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have no idea of how much is, is being leaked. So whatever number we give is probably low at this point. I, and so, um, and then where the leaks are is, uh, it's a long, let's, I've got six hours wrapped up in the research of it and I'm yeah. going with the number 20. I'm just going to, and and with one significant digit, twenty. Yeah, and okay. I would say that's probably conservative when you move forward. Now the other thing is is that if you're using electric baseboard heat or if you're using natural gas heat, 
Um, I'm going to start off making a statement, and I'm going to have to further qualify it in a moment. But I'm going to start off in saying, for electric, for natural gas, 100% of it is stuff that was sequestered underground, and we have artificially removed it and introduced it into our carbon cycles. Yes. And then with electric heat, it's like most of it, same story. Some of it, not so much, but then for the, for that, some of it that is not so much, um, it has different environmental disaster stuff tied to it. Let's just say yeah. that behind, on the other side of that electrical wire, no matter where you're getting it from, there is an environmental disaster there. Yes. And, and it is, and your, your personal contribution to that environmental disaster is not small. It's yes. significant. So, um. I just have to share. Okay. Oh, not this. Oh, yes, you do. Oh. No, I'll, I'll get my own. What? What is going on? What are you going to share? Janelle? Oh, you wanting to add sorry. to this podcast? No, I was. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I thought I was muted. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Moving along. Um, I just want to make it very clear. All of the electricity that you use has a massive environmental disaster on the other end. All of it. All of it. All of it. All of it. And everybody keeps wanting to say, no, all of it. I think the only one that I would say doesn't have an environmental disaster behind it would be a personal microhydro system that's done very, very well. Yeah. I, I I can't – everything else, there's an environmental disaster on the other side. Yep. Okay. Uh, now I – would, I would tend to agree with that, yes. If it's done properly, then microhydro can be reasonable. Okay. Now, uh, we talked about baseboard heat, which begs – to talk about heat pumps. Yeah. And um, and now I find it nearly impossible to ever talk to a heat pump person about heat pumps because there is the cost of installing mini splits in your home, which is a very low cost. And then there's the cost of installing an in-ground heat pump in your home, which is a very high cost. Mm-hmm. And then... Then there's the amount of savings that you get, like the mini splits will heat your home with half the electricity of baseboard, but the in-ground heat pump will heat your home with a quarter of the electricity. So when you talk about heat pumps, you find that you're in this slippery fish conversation where the person says you can get heat pumps, for this lower price, and heat pumps can heat your home with one quarter of the energy. And, of course, they're switching out which heat pumps you're using throughout the conversation. However, all heat pumps have an environmental disaster on the other end of that wire. All of them. 
I have found that it's difficult to talk about a rocket mass heater around a, a, a lot of people that are that have been told possibly a thousand times that there is nothing better than a heat pump that we all should be pursuing heat pumps. And well, I think I think I have to throw in here that there's also an environmental disaster on the other end of the delivery truck that brings you the heat the heat pump in the first place. It is having to do with the manufacturer of the heat pump. There's there is so much more to say about that and I feel like we could record an entire podcast just talking about heat stuff or we could probably record an entire podcast about why heat pumps are absolutely wonderful and absolutely shit at the same time. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot to be said about heat pumps. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I think a lot of people have only read the four-color brochure and they didn't read the fine print. Mm-hmm. And so all we hear about is the four-color brochure and somehow the fine print never gets mentioned. And so I think you and I, Mr. Booker, are fine print kind of guys. Yep. Yeah. Now... Um, baseboard heat, uh, 29.4 tons, heat pump, less than that, maybe a half, maybe a quarter of that. So, uh, natural gas heat, 20. Um, wood stove, a conventional wood stove, four tons. A really modern, wood stove used extremely well. Like, like you know what the hell you're doing. You never put green wood in that thing. You never put a wet log in that thing. You run it very efficiently all the time and you're doing all kinds of other stuff in your home to make the system very efficient. Two tons. 29.4 down to 20 down to four, down to two. And now, of course, the thing that I'm going to push for, a rocket mass heater, 0.4 tons. Now, if you want to talk about um, things like uh, um, a masonry heater, you know, something that takes, that's going to cost at least $30,000, um to put in, but 0.8 tons. So more than a rocket mass heater, and a lot of people love those things, and good for them, um, but they are expensive. So, mm-hmm. all right. And I would I would point out while we're doing the, the numbers here that during the carbon negative mass heater um, uh, webinar that we did, I pointed out where we did the, I worked with a world-class carbon combustion chemist and we did the carbon um, accounting and showed that if we could run what I was calling a carbon negative mass heater, which is a rocket mass heater configured in a particular way and operated in a particular way and the fuel um, grown in a particular way, that we were net negative carbon of about 18,000 pounds per year while running an 8-inch rocket mass heater six hours a day for something like 120 to 130 days out of the year. So negative nine tons per year. Yes. That is that is beautiful. That is yeah. just beautiful. Now, 
I want to circle back to something here, and I'm going to say that um, for electric heat, uh, most of that, on average, or at least here in Montana, most of that is going to be pulling stuff out of the ground that was sequestered, unsequestering it, and then adding it to our carbon cycles. Right. And I'm going to say natural gas, it's 100%. It's a solid 100%. Yes. I'm going to say uh, a wood school, uh, I'm sorry, a wood stove, a conventional wood stove, zero of that. Zero. Hard zero. It's only pulling what it's burning to heat your home is coming out of the natural carbon cycle. Yep. Hard zero. Yeah. Same thing goes for a really good wood stove, a modern, awesome wood stove used extremely well, a rocket mass heater, and a masonry stove. All of those are pulling zero out of the ground that is sequestered. And, um, and so it's using stuff that's, so one could argue that these are all have a carbon footprint of zero. One could argue that. I'm, uh, it's debatable how good of an argument it is. But I think it's a pretty good argument if you do it right. And I know for people who aren't familiar with this, let me kind of throw this idea in. I started now writing about the idea of carbon sequestration and dividing it into dynamic sequestration and static sequestration. And static sequestration, what you're talking about, where that carbon is buried in the soil in a, in a static chemical form, it's no longer part of the atmospheric or biological carbon cycle, and therefore it's not affecting the carbon, you know, the active carbon cycle. What I call dynamic sequestration is where the carbon is pulled down and is part of biomass on the surface, that biomass of which can degrade and the carbon can move back into the, uh, the atmospheric carbon cycle. And so what you're talking about, Paul, is that when a tree grows, for example, um, it, I, I say it this way, the tree actually precipitates out of the air more than it grows up out of the ground in that the vast majority of its mass actually comes from carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen, the carbon of which is pulled out of the atmosphere, not pulled out of the ground. And as a result, when we grow a tree or we allow a tree to grow, it's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, and when we combust it, especially if we combust it completely, so it's all carbon dioxide, and we were basically re-releasing part of the carbon dioxide that the tree originally pulled out of the atmosphere, we're releasing part of that back into the atmosphere. That's why this can be a closed cycle with no net positive release of carbon into the atmosphere, but it also turns out when that tree grew, it helped produce soil organic matter, which dynamically sequesters carbon and so on and so forth. So, yes, it's easy to be net zero with um, properly done biomass um, com- uh, combustion from a strictly from a strict scientific engineering standpoint. It's easy to do that. I agree. Um, when it comes to just Heat. And I know that there's also, you know, heat mitigation in a warm climate. Like, how do you get rid of it? Yeah. But, 
But when it comes to just heat and focusing for a moment just on Montana, is there any other type of heat that you really want to talk about? I mean, we could talk about propane. We could talk about oil. We can talk. I mean, there is a, there's pellet stoves. There's a long, long, long list of different kinds of heat. But I kind of feel like when it comes to carbon footprint and heat, we have sufficiently covered the topic in a podcast about climate change. Yeah. I would just say this. Um, you're going to hear a lot of people uh, insist that biomass is a bad option for the reason that some of the biomass that has been done has been, oh, well, we're going to go over here and cut down forests and convert that into pelletized wood and then haul it several hundred miles over here and use that to heat buildings. And that, of course, is another kind of environmental disaster. What we would I would point out here is that what Paul and I are discussing is what I would call local sustainable regenerative biomass production where that biomass is used immediately on site. Um, and when done properly, this actually regenerates the biology of the site while at the same time providing us with a regenerative source of heat on site. So I don't think either of us are trying to defend the idea of cutting down virgin forest, pelletizing it, dragging it across the country and burning it in a, you know, a pelletized stove or whatever. That's not what we're talking about. Hey, this is T. Blankenship. Have you seen the new video of Wheaton Labs? It is permaculture awesomeness with all new and improved things like more rocket mass heaters, easy bake coffin, Willy Wonka, rocket cooktop 2.0, and the truly passive greenhouse. To see more, go to permies.com slash tour. Again, that is permies.com slash tour. Right, right. I'm, I think the thing that I advocate for the most is the branches that naturally fall off the trees in your yard every year. So yes. I'm I'm in Montana, uh wooded area. I'm kind of suggesting that, you know, there's wood right here every year that's, you know, it's it's on the ground right in front of me. I pick it up and I set it aside and I will heat my home with that later. And that's yeah. kind of what I'm advocating for in a large way. Now, granted, when you when you do um, when you're heating your home with 10 cords of wood and, and you're going to go get that 10 cords of wood every year, there's a lot of people that own some pretty large four by four trucks and they have a pretty massive collection of chainsaws and the amount of labor that they put into going out and getting all of it is profound. And yes. I'm not talking about that either. No. Um, no. So, uh, but let's, let's set all of that. I mean, there's so much to talk about all of these things. I mean, I, I feel like between the two of us, we could easily fill 400 hours just talking about heat. Yep. And, and at some point in time, you're going to tap the brakes. That was your turn. You went first. You said heat, whether it's heat mitigation or, uh, heat, heating a home. And that's yep. like good or hot one. water. That is a water cooking as well. That, 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 you know, and, and I, I kind of feel like, you know, there's a lot to say down that road as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, but sure, let's, but let's set that one aside. Maybe we can come back to that one in a bit because it's my turn. I get to pick one. Okay. And this is something that I put together after the Better World book was printed. And, um, 
And I've said this a few times. Uh, somebody made it into a delightful meme, and there may even be a bunch of them. Um, and I know that, that Andreas made a little YouTube video, and I put it in the YouTube video, and that's out there, and uh, I like it. But it, it goes like this. I call it um, the apple a day. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard me talk about the apple a day thing before. And uh, it goes like this. Um, you eat an apple a day, and you put the seeds in your pocket. And when the opportunity presents itself, you stick those seeds in the ground. I'm going to state that that is 100 tons per year. So you are sequestering 100 tons of carbon per year. And, um, and now, granted, this is going to be over a, a long span of time, but basically uh, those trees will grow, and uh, they're going to um, each get to be a certain size and and there is, and by the way, I want to say a thing that is, that is through all of this stuff about study of carbon footprint, this little bit of math that I've come up with, and I want Alan to verify that my math is sound. There is, there is, uh, um, when you grow a tree and there is, let's say, 10 tons of woody mass, Above the ground and below the ground, and overall, all the woody mass adds up to 10 tons. It is approximately 10 tons of carbon dioxide that has been removed from the air. There is probably about 10 layers of math between one and the other, and it's bizarre that they end up in this nearly one-to-one relationship. Alan, is my math sound? I think you're in the right ballpark. I'd have to run the numbers again, but I think just off the top of my head, you're in the right ballpark. People who think about that, it's like, remember, carbon dioxide is one atom of carbon and two atoms of oxygen. So when you add up the weight of carbon dioxide, you have to add up the weight of the carbon and the two oxygens. And then when it gets into the tree, the the, the oxygens you know, get pulled <laughs> off in order to get the carbon. And then that's where all the math gets uh, Oh, Oh, it just, and then that's just the beginning. Right. As, right. as I said, there's like 10 layers of math. Yeah. But I think in the end, there's this rough equivalency and it, and it depends on how much moisture is in the tree. It depends on, on what is the species of tree. Yep. It depends on all sorts of stuff. And yeah. it's like, but in general, Roughly, there's a ton of tree matter for every ton of carbon dioxide that is uh, now sequestered in the tree. And so, give or take. All right. The big thing is, is that I'm going to make a statement, and I've gone through the math myself, but it's my math. And so, Mr. Booker, let me present this other mathematical thing to you. I'm going to say... That if you eat an apple a day, so 365 apples with an average of five seeds per apple, and you put them in your pocket and you distribute them, you plant them outside as the opportunity presents itself, I'm saying that, you know, there's going to be a certain germination rate, there's going to be a bunch of trees that get destroyed before they get to be five years old, there's 
all sorts of variables and factors and and things. There's so much happening. And, of course, I am assuming a cold climate. I'm assuming Montana or a cold climate. So I'm going to say apple a day sequesters 100 tons per year per person that does this. Hmm. I haven't done the math, so I'd have to walk. You haven't done the math, but there I've started the mathematical engine, and it sounds like your your first response is not, hell no, you are so off. It's like the subtext of your grunt is plausible. So let's let's leave it on the table as plausible. Let let me just say this. I think that if you talk about something that you could do, whereas I started off with deal with heat to minimize your carbon footprint in the sense of emissions, you're coming at it, okay, well, how can we maximally sequester, what we call dynamically sequester carbon? I think if you basically go at it and if you were to say, Planting trees are the number one highest leverage thing that that a person can do. I would absolutely agree with that. And then we can do the math, but it's like, I think that's probably the highest leverage thing you can do by a pretty good margin. Now, there have been a lot of people who have argued you shouldn't just go around and plant trees anywhere. That's not good. And I kind of feel like... (laughs) Here's here's my first response. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> and and it's kind of like uh uh but I I kind of feel like there has been a lot of tree destruction. Like I'm going to make up a new number. I just because of this Is conversation. Hello Raven. Hi. Are you joining the conversation? No. She's <laughs> not. It was a boo-boo. Um but I'm going to make up a number. I'm going to say that right now, the amount of tree carbon in the United States has been reduced by 80% by human beings, by by human beings being here the last several hundred years, uh, European human beings, that the, for whatever reason, because you're making farmland, that's most of it, I think, um, or... You know, I don't like this tree look, so I'm going to go with something that's more lawn-like, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of There's a long, long, long list of things. But I think the total tree count or the total tons of tree carbon in the United States has been reduced by 80% since, let's, I'm going to just make up a number, since 400 years ago until now, total Total tree carbon count reduced by 80%. Alan, is my guess anywhere near what your guess would be? Oh, God. That is a such a complex number. And the, the reason for that is, oh, boy, like I could do an entire two-hour podcast on just like the what it would take to do those, that, that, that calculation because you have to think about the fact that, you know, in the eastern United States, we used to have the, the American chestnut and so the average height of tree back in 400 years ago and the ma- average biomass per tree when you had a chestnut overstory dominated is huge, right? And then you, but you also had huge areas today that are actually covered by trees that used to be silvopastoral 
dominated by, say, bison that are now covered over, like where I am down here, where we have now large areas that are covered by forests that used to be silvopastoral because we had rotationally grazed bison, which were whose rotation was driven by red wolf down here and so forth. So it's like, boy, and we used to have grasslands and everything. Boy, it's a complicated bit. What I can Mm. say is that the numbers I have seen that people have run that tend to be, have some degree of peer review on them suggest that we have destroyed something on the order of half the biomass um, that was on the planet 400, 500 years ago, like total biomass. Um, tree biomass, that's a, oh boy, complicated to calculate tree biomass on a, on North America. That's, that's a complicated number. It would take some study, but I would feel comfortable in saying that we have probably destroyed half of the biomass that was on the planet, um, a thousand years ago. I would, I think that number has been more, has been, I've seen, I've seen calculations that support that. I, I've been to a lot of farms and, um, and I grew up in on farm country and, uh, and it's like, you know, this, this, like the Palouse empire, it used to be covered with all kinds of trees. And, mm-hmm. uh, and now it's where we grow so much peas and wheat and, yes. um, uh, and they've lost so much of the organic matter in the soils and they're struggling. But, um, uh, it's, it's like when you talk about this, what used to be, it was like, you couldn't see these things because wherever you stand, you're so surrounded by trees. You can't see that there's a hill over there. You can't see yeah. these rolly hills. You can never really see that. You'd have to get up into the tops of the trees to be able to see over all the trees to kind of get an idea of where there are hills and things. So yeah. you wouldn't be able to see 200 feet in that direction to see that there's a bunch of exposed dirt. You wouldn't be able to see that. But all of those trees were ripped out in order to make all of this cropland. Yes. And so, all right. This yeah, is I mean, a big it's, part it's of a why. Huge, it's a huge amount. We'll just say it's it'd be, it's, 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 it's hard to put, for me to put an exact number no, no. on it. But the amount of tree biomass we've lost, I will agree, is huge. Yes. I'm saying 80%. And, I, and I'm qualifying that by saying I just made the number up. I'm just taking a wild guess based upon all of the different things, all of the different information that I have consumed over my life in this space. Yeah. I'm making a wild guess, 80%. Now, and there will, there will be people who will come back and argue that number based upon the fact that they will, they will cherry pick the moment in which tree cover was, had been most depleted from a particular area by industry and show that some of those areas have now been reforested, which is true. It's a complex mosaic we're talking about, right? Some oh, yeah. areas that used to be forested are now aforested, and some areas that were aforested during the Industrial Revolution have now been reforested, and it's and then the spatial mix has changed of, of what's there, and therefore the average biomass per acre has changed. It's like, boy, it's it's a complicated bunch of Calculation, but like I said, I'll agree that we have drastically reduced the amount of tree biomass from the pre-colonial period. So I, I'm going to. So the whole thing that I'm saying for my turn on how do we reduce our carbon footprints, and starting with the biggest ones first. Well, you, well, yours was 
you know, it used to be my number one go-to. That now, I, now my apple a day thing is where I start. Um, and and uh, and and usually people reject it so thoroughly and completely because where do I put the seeds? And then there's always some dumb fuck that comes up with the whole thing of like, well, you know, it's not going to produce an edible apple. First, I want to say, yes, it will. You stupid piece of shit. <laughs> but yes, yes, well, 80% of the time it will be actually quite good. But that's a whole other conversation for a whole other podcast. But yep. it's like, we weren't talking about that. We were talking about carbon sequestration. And, and so basically I come up with this system that is effectively totally free. And I'm saying, eat an apple a day, put the seeds in your pocket. And when the opportunity presents itself, maybe a couple of times a week, maybe once a month, then you plant those seeds out someplace. And granted, not all of them will germinate and all those kinds of things. But on the other hand, it's totally free. Uh, when we try to talk, when I try to talk about a rocket mass heater for so many people, it's absolutely impossible because of this list of reasons. And it's like, this is something that's far more plausible it's it's far easier and um and so you just take the seeds stick them in the ground when the opportunity presents itself and what that opportunity is can be so many different things and yeah somebody might cut it down and yeah but in fact i remember in seattle there is a park that's like by looking at it i would guess that it's like maybe 25 or 30 acres and there's a a piece of the park off to one side covered in fruit trees which the people who maintain the park maintain those fruit trees but what happened is a guy who lived across the street kept going into the park and planting fruit tree seeds all over the place and then when the park came to maintain the park, the the grounds crew, they saw that there were these small trees, and they thought somebody must have planted it as part of the park thing, and they just started maintaining these fruit trees. There's like a hundred fruit trees there that some guy just planted the seeds for, and the and the park people are maintaining them. And then other people can go and harvest those that fruit whenever they want, because the park people don't care they just so it can be done and on top of that i'm i've processed the math myself a bunch of times and you don't have to believe my math but i'm going to say doing this i'm going to say a hundred tons per year now granted it'll be 40 years until it hits a hundred tons but still it makes a difference and i got this idea while I was being interviewed for this British thing, and they wanted to know about food security. Yeah. And I, and, and they threw this question at me. I didn't know the question was coming. And I came up with this idea. What if you eat an apple a day and you plant the seeds willy nilly wherever you want? And next thing you know, 40 years from now, all of Britain is just absolutely infested with apples. They're everywhere. They're growing like weeds. Now, does Britain have, like, 
far more food security than before. Nobody cared for these apple trees. Nobody sprayed them. Nobody did anything with them. But now there's so much food all over the place. Then do you have more food security now? That's that's where this all started. And mm-hmm. it's like, because it's like, now that I think about it, you would also, you know, take a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into trees. And when you look at a lot of lawns today and you look at a lot of different uh, fields that have no windbreak anymore, uh, all kinds of stuff like that, having more trees solves so much. And as permies, we're kind of bonkers about more trees, too. All right. Julia has had her hand up for a very long time. She's been so patient. Dr. Julia, what do you want to add to this? I just, I just, I'm sorry. I apologize ahead of time, but I've, you've been on Wheaton Labs for about 10 years. And I remember visiting you there 10 years ago and watching you throw fruit out and say, good luck, good luck fruit, you know, but I was there in July and I don't think I saw seed grown apples. If you go to the Hugo culture that is farthest north inside the paddock near the house, mm-hmm. there is an apple tree that was started from seed that is currently about 25 feet tall. Um, and it has yet to bear a single apple. <laughs> it has never bloomed, but it is a giant tree and because it's growing there, and we put those cultures in there, like, after, was it our, I think it was our first year. I'm pretty sure it was our first year here. So it's, let's say, nine years old. Mm-hmm. And, and um, but it was definitely started from seed. I would say that um, as you go back to the paddock, there is the Fisher-Price house on the left, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is a funny thing. Left, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. on on the left, there's there's the the Fisher Price house is on the left. Right. And did you notice right next to the Fisher Price house, to your left of the path where you walk? Right. But there's a bunch of trees about twelve feet tall. Okay. All of those started from seed. All, All right. One hundred percent. Now. There are, but but there aren't there aren't three thousand trees. Absolutely true, absolutely true. And uh, and you've heard me in this podcast mention it many times, and you've been here and you've seen it for yourself. This particular property, the mm-hmm. the you know what we call base camp, uh, this is one giant rock. Fair. True. Okay. True. So if, if I throw a thousand seed da- seeds down on this rock and say, good luck seeds, you're on your own, how are they going to do? Right? Very difficult. They're, they're, but I, I guess, I guess I just, I worry that if you make this statement about 300, you know, apple a day and then 100 tons of carbon, that thinking people such as myself are going to run into various things and then just and then just write you off. Oh no, 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 no. I 
I'm already written off an awful lot. And, <laughs> and, and which is part of the reason why I'm recording this podcast with Alan Booker. And, right. and I would have to say, when I was writing the Better World book, yeah. you showed up. Yeah. There were things in there that you took exception to. True. And we catered to you. Okay. For those things, because you're like, you know, I'm making a statement about cancer. I remember this specifically. This is probably the biggest thing about that book. Pediatric that, cancer, to be specific. That, that you and I went into. And, and so, but in the end, we came up with a number for which you were only slightly uncomfortable with instead of very uncomfortable with. And that's the number <laughs> we published. All right. And, and Good. I felt like, fine, fine. So you're right. Bring in your skepticism. Yeah. And, and I will take it on. Good. Now. Good to know. Good to hear. I just, I just, you know, I'm just like, well, wait a second. But, you know, if this, if it was that simple, Wheaton Labs would be a giant apple orchard with peaches and plums and apricots and, you know, but of course it's not that simple because you're on a giant rock. Right. And I could do that where I live. You've been through Apricot Alley, right? You've walked through Apricot Alley. I don't think I have actually, but you're right. I I recognize that phrase. That is a thing. And so there's got to be 16 apricot trees still alive there. I bet we planted, um, I'm going to guess, 200 apricot pits over Mm -hmm. there. Now, granted, that's a little monocropy, but we're like, we're going to call it Apricot Alley, but we're going to have diversity as well. We planted 200 apricot pits, but we know not very many are going to make it, Mm -hmm. mostly because we planted the apricot pits on rock, and then we walked away. And they got to get to be yay big before we even notice that they exist. Mm-hmm. And, and we have. We've spotted some that existed. And then we would grab some of the rocks because, boy, do we have rocks. And we would try to make a ring of rocks around the apricot tree on top of a bunch of rocks, which so it doesn't really stick out too terribly much. But we've even gone in and we've gotten these orange posts that kind of, and we put like two or three around each apricot tree to kind of be like, look out, there's an apricot tree right here. So we're trying to nurture them along. Um, At the same time, while you were here, did you eat an apple a day? I did not eat an apple a day. How many apples did you eat while you were here? Well, we brought some apples with us, so maybe a couple. Okay. All right. All right. Now, you've heard me talk about the apple a day thing before. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not – so basically, if you come here, I'm not requiring you to eat an apple a day. I'm not requiring people to eat an apple a day. I'm not requiring them to do the apple a day thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Further – I'm not currently eating an apple a day, even though that does sound like a dream life, and I wish to sign up for that because I do love apples that much. But, um, and, and even when I do eat the apple, I generally don't pick out the seeds. What I'll do is I'll take the core, unlike Ianto Evans, who eats the whole core, Mm. I don't, and I throw the core in um with the kitchen scraps 
And I know it eventually it'll go outside and be part of a rootstock composting thing. So that those seeds will end up being in a rootstock composting pile. And we've seen a lot of those seeds germinate and produce a tree. Okay. And then what happens is when we do our gardening later, sometimes people will be like, oh, look, there's an apple tree started from seed. I'm going to protect it. But I'm going to guess 90% of the time the gardener is like, you are too close to this other thing I'm trying to grow, so you have to go. So there's some mm-hmm. of that. Um, so I'm stating a thing. Yeah. If we want, if, if an individual wants to counter their carbon footprint, I'm giving them a recipe for what I claim to be 100 tons per year. Right. And and the recipe is the apple a day, save the seeds, and then plant the seeds when the opportunity presents itself. Now, uh, I don't think anybody has done that here. I mean, I do think we have, from time to time, set up a big program where we have a jar, a giant jar with a big label on it that says apple seeds. And then we've gotten like four cups of apple seeds that we all say, because we did, we picked the seeds out of the apple cores. Mm-hmm. We ate gobs of apples and we saved them. And then we went and planted them in different places and had different degrees of success. But that's still not even close to one person doing an apple a day. The key oh, is, if somebody's going to ask, what can I do to reduce my carbon footprint? My number one response today is apple a day. So right. l- let me let me say that when I I hear this, I as as an engineer and ecologist, I think of it in sort of metaphorical terms. Um, in other words, I, I'm I'm thinking when I hear this, what I I think I'm hearing from Paul is basically this. Um, the story of an apple a day is an example, but it basically says, what if we as human beings interacted with the planet? in such a way that our day-to-day activities seeded a, a great diversity of, of tree genetics around the ecosystems we inhabit and then allowed for those tree genetics, some of them, you know, to thrive when the right genetics are in the right place. And by so doing, if we all undertook that, we would basically reclaim our place as a keystone species in the distribution of tree genetics across the landscape, the way that, say, indigenous peoples uh, were known to do uh, pre-colonial times, that um, there was a huge genetic diversity of tree crop um, and a tended garden, so to speak, of, of trees stretching across much of North America um, that were highly productive, um, that um, w- helped produce tree, uh, food security for the people, but also for the animals that were living here, and that also meant that um, there was a huge amount of biomass and trees across much of the continent. Um, and so I would look at it that way, and instead of saying, well, the only way to do this is for every American to eat an apple a day and do an it's like, no, what we need is we need for them to follow the metaphor, which is having a lifestyle that is actually engaged with place 
and helping to reestablish, um, you know, uh, um, genetics that are mm-hmm. adapted to place and to scale that up and to be a gardener of trees at scale um, through the patterning with which we inhabit the landscape. Right. Whatever we can do to increase the amount of photosynthesis that's happening. Yes. I think in our local environment. So many people kind of come to this conclusion and they say it loudly, therefore it must be true. Uh, and that there's nothing I can do. There's not a thing I can do. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> so then I can throw out the apple a day. This podcast is continued in part three. Have you ever wondered whether a particular book was really good or just so-so, and if you could trust the reviews online? When it comes to books related to permaculture, Permies has a large list of reviews for over 100 books. Perhaps you're considering a book for yourself or a friend, or you're just curious about what's out there. Stop by permies.com forward slash book and take a look at the book review grid and read some honest reviews, and hopefully you'll find the next book to add to your collection.